Let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 15 this morning. We continue to work through the book of Exodus. Uh, We've been studying the Ten Commandments here for several weeks. You remember that uh, in between slavery in Egypt and that promised land in Canaan, the Lord has brought his people to Mount Sinai so that they might hear his voice and learn what it means to have a relationship with the Almighty God who redeemed them by grace. It's a a response to the grace and love that he's already given to them, that they must learn to to love and serve the Lord. But they also have to learn what it means to love one another in ways that reflect his generosity. And so as we come to the eighth commandment today, we recognize that the Lord's generosity is the heart of what is woven into this commandment. We believe the Bible is God's word written. It is the only infallible rule for faith and practice. So we give a reverent attention to his word. Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. This is the end of God's word. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you now for your word, and we pray that you would grant to us the ministry and help of your Holy Spirit so that we might hear you and know you. I pray again that you would be willing to wield in your hand an ordinary sinful crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. The scheme was very clever. He promised to invest their money. He never invested it. He simply deposited other people's money into a bank account. There was almost no growth But he kept telling people that the growth was tremendous, the investment was doing well, and so friends told other friends and other friends. And all of that continued to fuel this little bank account. If a client ever asked for their money back, he'd simply go to the bank account and he'd request those funds, give it back to him. But no money was ever invested. It's called a Ponzi scheme. It's an elaborate way to take money from someone else and 
just simply steal it for yourself. Money's never invested. Bernie Madoff was sentenced to 150 years in prison for securities fraud. He is now deceased. He collected, in the course of time, $36 billion from investors. He returned $18 billion. In total, $65 billion in money and fabricated gains were missing. That's stealing. I'd only been in Mississippi a few months when I began to wonder why it was that gasoline evaporated more quickly across the state line in Mississippi than it did in Alabama. Every lawnmower I owned seemed to be empty. Almost every car I owned seemed to be dropping in gas. I shared the strange concern with some friends at church, and they said, oh, somebody's sneaking in your carport. They're siphoning your gas. That's stealing. My daughter turned 11. Susan and I, really excited, bought her a new bicycle with a cute basket on it. Three days later, the bicycle was gone, stolen out of the storage closet attached to the carport. I suspect here's a commandment that most of us come to and we feel pretty good about ourselves. I've never created a Ponzi scheme, never gone and stolen your gas out of your carport. I've never stolen your daughter's bike. And so at some level, we come to a commandment like this and we go, huh, finally, Finally, something to listen to where I don't have to walk away going, ugh, that's me. But you recognize, don't you, over the course of the study of each of these commandments, that obedience to the commandment is always something more than external, that it is not just outside the cup, it's inside the heart. And so as we come to this commandment, it's, it is a matter of a heart. And here we learn that those who have been redeemed by grace from the Lord Jesus Christ are called to cultivate a spirit of stewardship. And so we'll examine our commandment under three headings today, obvious implications, deeper application, and then positive intentions. We'll start with the obvious implications. Verse 15, which is our study, simply says this, you shall not steal. Again, it's it's two words in Hebrew, stealing now by definition is to take something that doesn't belong to you without the other person's consent or knowledge. Let's start with three obvious implications. First, here's a commandment that tells us that that mankind has a right to personal property. Uh, I mean, there's no such thing as stealing if an individual doesn't have and doesn't control personal property. This idea has been wildly misunderstood over the centuries, I think. Many of you are familiar with the, the concept of communal living that sparked afresh in the 1960s, kind of a, a sort of life of its own, communities of people, communes, settling down for the purpose of fostering peace and love and with the, the, the underlying notion that we'll just share everything. If you've ever read Peter Jenkins' book, Walk Across America, he tells of a particular commune in southern Tennessee. Well, I went to high school with a guy whose parents were part of that commune. So I was sitting on a hill one day as we were mowing grass. We stopped for a second. He was telling me about it. I said, well, well, tell me why y'all ended up leaving the commune. Why'd you get out of it? And he said, well, in the end, it really didn't work. There's a lot of people who had good intentions, but 
in the end, there was a lot of contention, a lot of infighting. I mean, if you're going to share everything, then everybody has to work. Everybody's got to do something on the commune. There were lots of people who wanted to take but didn't want to give anything to the family. I suspect it's just a hyper-response to the materialism and greed that often reigns in our hearts. The idea seems noble, doesn't it? And yet it's based on a faulty notion. Sharing is good. Personal property is bad. And even if you can agree on the terms of the system of the the commune, it won't fix the problems of materialism. It won't cure greed that dwells in my own heart. I want just a little bit more than you have. Or I'm afraid that I won't have enough if you take some of it. The problem is not with, with materialism out there. The problem is with greed in my own heart or even just the human heart in general. God intended and designed that individuals and their families would have personal property. There's absolutely nothing wrong biblically with having personal property. How do I know? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching on matters of the heart, and he says, if someone would sue you and take your, cl- your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Jesus could never have said that if he didn't recognize that you're allowed to have your own tunic, your own jacket, your own clothes. And then he goes on to say, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, is Jesus here teaching me how to handle the panhandler at the end of the exit ramp when I go to Montgomery? Probably not. Maybe that's part of it. What am I going to do with personal property? But more deeply, the Lord is teaching us that I can hold the things that he has given to me with an open hand. Because there is a heart level of trust that I have to my father. Around the time Emperor Constantine became a Christian, 312 A.D., church history tells us that very few people were being martyred then for the cause of Christ. And so the badge of Christian courage, which had been martyrdom, was suddenly exchanged for a new badge, a badge of seclusion from the world, a badge of fleeing from material possessions, a badge of communal living. And so the fourth centuries saw the deserts of Syria and Egypt sprinkled with monks, as if it's a higher, more noble cause to have nothing and to share everything. And then people who are Christians might say, well, you see, that's, that's actually what's happening in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4. Where, remember, don't you, the people of Jerusalem are selling their possessions, they're distributing to all those who have need? Careful look at that text will remind you but they're doing that because there are physical needs in the church. And so far from rejecting the concept of personal property, it was those who had personal property who were moved by the generous grace of the Lord to share with those who had need. And so Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The first implication of the Eighth Commandment, you do have the right to own personal property. The second obvious implication, everything you possess came to you from God. Not just your possessions, but also your ability to earn 
Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Not only does he own the people, he owns every resource on the face of the earth. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Is that not an indictment on our culture wherein we pat our backs for being so industrious so intelligent, so capable of producing and earning wealth. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. It comes down to us from the Father of lights. So here's a coin with two sides. The reason you have what you have is because God gave it to you. You did not decide into which family you would be born. You did not decide what opportunities you would get along the way, what education you had by way of privilege. Somebody was willing to pay for your work when you got into school. Well, the other side of that coin is that the reason that other people around you have what they have is because God gave it to them. And it is so often our tendency to look at them and go, huh, he's much more generous with them than he is with me. One of the many reasons the Bible forbids stealing is you cannot take from someone else what God has already given to them. I wonder if we don't steal in our own heart just by simply being discontent and bothered that that person earns more than I do. Third obvious implication What God has given to you, you have as a resource to be stewarded for his glory. One pastor said that what the Bible means by ownership is not possessing things to use for our own purposes, but receiving things from the Lord for his glory. And so we are required to use those things in ways that are pleasing to the Lord. To put it very simply, the eighth commandment isn't about stealing only, it's about stewardship. What's a steward? Philip Ryken says that a steward is someone who cares for someone else's property, and he is free to, he's not free to use it however he pleases, but only to manage it in accordance with the master's intentions. The Bible begins by saying that you must take care of your family. That's stewardship, 1 Timothy 5, 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so each person is to work and provide gainful employment for themselves, but also so that they can take care of those within their family. If you're married with a family, you work so that you can provide financially for those under your care. But that's not where good stewardship stops. It actually moves into the life of the church. You invest in your local church so that each of us is called to give to the Lord his tithes and our offerings. There is a requirement to give the tenth of our increase. Above that, offerings, well, those, those flow from a heart of gratitude which says, thank you, Lord, so much for giving to me with such generosity. We're called to respond to the, the generous grace with generous gifts. Beyond that, good stewardship also means the global advance of the Lord's kingdom. It includes missions works. It includes various charities with special kingdom needs and purposes. Also, it includes care for the poor and the needy. 
Here's where the tension lies, maybe in my own heart and maybe yours as well. I have to study the Bible's teaching. I have to rely on the work of the Holy Spirit as the Lord of my conscience. Because while clearly in the Bible every person has a right to personal property and in a culture that is wealthy like ours, somewhat difficult to figure out the line we're providing for my family and grabbing on real tightly to make sure I secure more and more and more really is. I think it's easy to look at what others have. And when do I actually cross the line between providing for them and and, and spoiling them? Where's the line? Wherein my heart moves from stewarding the abundance of the gifts that God's given me to suddenly beginning to amass wealth, to feel safe in the wealth that I have amassed, getting more stuff. The Bible says there's a heart-level difference between stewarding God's resources and simply possessing more stuff. Redeemed by grace, gifted by a generous Father, God calls us to cultivate a spirit of stewardship. So those are the obvious implications. Now let's look at the deeper applications. What is strictly forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? I've spoken kind of lightly at some level about Ponzi schemes, about stealing a child's bicycle. But in the Eighth Commandment, God forbids any outright theft, whether breaking and entering, armed robbery, shoplifting, or even just taking. In any sense, what belongs to someone else, without their permission, without them knowing. In the next several chapters in Exodus, the Lord lays out applications to his commandments. And one of the first ones that we'll come to is in chapter 21, where God forbids stealing another human being. It's what we call kidnapping. And for several hundred years in the supposedly Christianized world, here's a blind spot that the church ignored. Human beings are being stolen from one part of the world and brought to another part of the world and sold as if they were property. They were literally kidnapped. That means that a little boy or a little girl lost his mother and father because they had been stolen from him or her. Fathers and mothers lost their children, stolen for evil purposes. Today, I think that happens worldwide. Still? Yeah. The global sex trade does precisely the same thing. It is wrong. It's evil. The Heidelberg Catechism, which we read earlier, mentions in question 110 this this issue of cheating. Cheating is a form of, of stealing, and in a college town, it might be useful to make mention that cheating is taking someone else's work. You're stealing what someone else has labored to do. You've stolen from them the time that it took invested to do their work. You're stealing from them a grade that they earned. You're stealing someone else's effort, and you're passing it off as if it's your own. And I have known, and so have you, really sweet, really precious, seemingly innocent little boys and girls who would never think of theft. They'd never think of sneaking into your closet and stealing your daughter's bicycle, but they would steal someone else's work. Just by a glance, 
by carefully leaning over the shoulder, maybe even just cooperating. I'll give you the answers. You give me yours. Likewise, if you're offered an education, either by generous parents who are kind enough to help you financially or by scholarships, and you do not give your honest best efforts, you're taking the, the money that the Lord has entrusted to them or to the university or even to you, and you're actually stealing it. Is it really that hard to get up and go to class? Is it actually that hard to put forth the effort to study? To carve out some time in your busy schedule? What happens at a cash register when the, do they still have cash registers? What happens if the clerk gives you a little bit more, overpays you? Do you say, hey, I think you, you overpaid me. Let me give this back to you. Or do you simply tuck it in your pocket and move out the door really quickly? If you find money sitting on the ground, stewardship in that moment demands that I genuinely make a sincere effort to figure out whose money is this, to try to get it back to the person who lost it. Why? Because the Lord calls us to treat others the way that he would want us to be treated. If I lose my money, I'm hopeful that somebody would be willing to go, Eric, hey, I found your wallet. As a teenager, I was helping my grandmother put away some towels in an old laundry closet and as I stacked the towels in there I realized that there's a $20 bill here between this towel and that towel so I lifted up I looked again there's another $20 bill and I lifted it up again and there's another $20 bill my grandmother who was a product of the great depression was hiding money she's just storing it in there to keep it safe what does a teenage boy do? <gasps> I found money. This is remarkable. I didn't take the time to say, I wonder why it's in my grandmother's laundry closet. What do you do? My impulse was greed. Do you take supplies from the office, bought and paid for by your employer? I like this pen, it's a really good pen. And I'm going to take 40 of them so that I have plenty at home. Steal time from your employer? When you have been given an agreed upon system of work, an amount of work that needs to be completed, or even an hour that needs to be given to the, to the subject of work, and you spend 30 minutes of it on the internet, you don't give your best, you're stealing from your employer. I'm embarrassed to say the reputation of pastors, church employees, missionaries, those raising support for kingdom work, they're often thought of as lazy. Ought to be a pretty deep conviction. When money is given by people for the kingdom's work, for the Lord's work, if I do not give the effort that the money was given for, those who choose to serve the Lord vocationally have a responsibility not only to the Lord, but to those who gave for his kingdom service. I remember another form of stealing was depicted in the episode of the Andy Griffith show. Maybe you're fans, maybe you're not. Start of the episode, Opie's trying to sell his beat-up bike to an old friend. The bike has lots of problems, and Opie tries to hide those problems, not to sell it with a measure of honesty. Andy walks by, he says, son, did you, 
tell them about that problem and that problem and that problem. You need to deal fairly with people when you sell things to them. Don't just try to get rid of your junk and make some money. And Andy introduces Opie to the term fair dealing. Then later in the episode, Andy is looking to upgrade his house to another house around the corner, a nicer home. A prospective buyer comes to his house and he, like his son, begins to attempt to hide. The, leak, the roof is leaking a little bit and yeah, the pipes rattle. Opie says, Pa, is it only kids that have to do that fair dealing? Or does that apply to grown-ups too? And so, friends, if you go to sell something, try to hide the flaws to exact as much as possible from an unsuspecting buyer. The Bible says that's stealing. If your car is worth $5,000 and you are going to list it for $10,000 in hopes that you'll find a fool somewhere, in biblical language, you'll probably find a fool and you'll walk away as a thief. When I take from my neighbor in a manner that is not right or good for them, It actually exposes a heart of greed in me. Other forms of stealing include cheating on your income taxes. Matthew 22, 21, Jesus said, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God's the things that are God's. It's such a simple statement. But really it strikes at the heart of our struggle in two directions. Failing to deal honestly with the government on my taxes is actually stealing from the government. Failing to give to the Lord his tithe, the tenth of my earnings, that's stealing from the Lord. In many ways, the command is very simple. The Lord calls each of us in our various stations of life with the work that we've been assigned in that season to do that work and and from that work to earn money And from that money to remember that it came from God and to give a portion of it back instead of desiring to hang on to it really tightly. You give back to the Lord what he's asked and then give to those to whom it is required. If you employ other people, are you paying them fairly and honestly? Are you paying taxes on their employment? When you deal with others in financial transactions, houses, cars, land, business, are you treating that person as you would like to be treated? Heidelberg Catechism 111 that we read earlier in the the worship service, it says this command requires that I do whatever I can for my neighbor's good, that I treat others as I would like them to treat me, and that I would work faithfully so that I may share with those in need. So this is a command that I tend to think I'm doing okay with until I realize that the commandment, like all other commandments, is not simply external. Stewardship is a matter of the heart. And so the person who holds their money really tightly, whose impulse is hyper-saving, who isn't giving to the Lord the full tithe, that person is guilty of theft every much every, to every degree as the person who's guilty of armed robbery because both are really an issue of greed within the heart. Whatever you steal in even the, even the seemingly tame and respectable ways, it's a matter of the heart. It's, a, it's really a proof 
that I don't trust the Lord's providence. So the impulse to take from someone else, either by outright stealing or by fudging on the facts, tells me that I don't really believe that I've been given enough by the hand of God. I don't trust that he'll take care of me at a deeper level. What if I can't see where it's going to come from? It's often the same failure to trust the Lord's providence that leads me to take the money that he's given to me to squeeze it really tightly in my hands. Okay, for now, when, until I can figure out what I'm going to do with it, I'm going to put it over here in this account, and I'm going to earn a little bit more money on it, and then eventually when I figure out what to do with it, I'll give back more. And I think I'm going to go ahead and buy a second house because we will make a killing on that second house, and then later I'll be able to give even more. But I need to earn a little bit more before I give. Aren't you thankful the Lord doesn't hold his mercy and his grace with the same tight hands? Well, maybe I'll give it later to the sinner once I've built up more to give. One pastor said, every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual, perpetual generosity is perpetual de-deification of money. His point, as I give away what the Lord has given to me, I'm declaring that money isn't my God. It doesn't control me. As those by grace who've been saved, God calls me to cultivate a spirit of stewardship. So we've got obvious implications. We've got deeper applications. Let me say this by way of comment. I have probably in the course of four years pastoring this church not once spoken on the subject of money. Not once, except when it comes up in the Bible. And it is simply by act of providence that we happen to have made mention of the land. I could never in May have planned or ordered those comments to connect with this day at this time. I'm really not that smart. I'm really not that good at keeping a calendar. So if you see this text... You recognize that here's the providence of God and Eric isn't smart enough to plan it. I want to show you the beauty of these positive intentions. Zacchaeus, whose encounter with Christ we read about earlier in worship, it's an example of the transforming grace of the Lord Jesus because here's a man who lived most of his life so deeply enslaved to greed, so consumed with amassing wealth that he overcharged and he defrauded and he embezzled and he stole from his own people and then he meets Christ and God transforms his heart from a thief to a generous giver it's actually an example of what the gospel does to your heart and mine it's the extravagant mercy of the Lord that compels him to say I'll give away half of everything I have to the poor every person I've ever defrauded I'll restore it for fold. Here's a man transformed from stealing to stewardship. When the Protestant Reformation caught fire in Europe, all of the reformers recognized that the moral law, which was summarized in the Ten Commandments, remained relevant for Christians. And so Martin Luther began to speak about these two uses of the law. He said, first, the law condemns so that when I am condemned, I recognize I need a Savior 
And then secondly, he said the law has a restraining effect. That is just by virtue of of knowing that certain offenses are against God's will. Evil men will at some level be restrained. John Calvin, who respected Martin Luther his entire life, said, I think there's also a third use of the moral law. And he said, I think this is the principal use. Here's a positive use of God's law, more than conviction, more than restraining. For those who have come to know Christ, it is God's intention that by the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit, you and I learn what it means to be enabled to walk in the ways of our Lord. Because the Lord teaches us his will through his law. He exhorts us then to obedience. For the Christian, here's the profound comfort. He's also given you the Holy Spirit, which we read about earlier, so that I move in that direction. And so if you're here today and you encounter some splinters or some planks in your own eye that perhaps you didn't even realize were there, it's helpful to remember that Jesus was crucified with two thieves. The men on either side of the cross were thieves. Was that a strange accident of providence? Martin Luther explains the point. He says, Christ is personally innocent. Therefore, he should not have been hanged on a tree. But because according to the law, every thief must be hanged. Therefore, according to the law of Moses, Christ must be hanged in your place. For we are sinners and thieves, and therefore we are worthy of death and eternal damnation. But Christ took sins upon himself, and for them he died on the cross. Luther goes on to say, therefore, it was appropriate for him to become a thief, as Isaiah 53 says, to be numbered among the thieves. You see, friends, in the courtroom of God's justice, three thieves hung on the cross. Two of them died for their own sins. And one of them died for your sins and mine. That kind of profound grace compels a new obedience. Since the Father chose to associate with sinners like me to become sin for me, so when I hear his voice and his spirit empowers me, then I strive by all of the grace to become more like the righteousness that he has given me generously. For God's glory, let us cultivate a spirit of stewardship. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would cause it to land in our hearts, that the ministry of your Holy Spirit would make much of it. And do not leave us to ourselves, but grant us the blessing of conviction and and comfort. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.